The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, and welcome The Telegraph's history correspondent, Daniel Kapura, to share some historical perspectives and thoughts on how contemporary geopolitics have been impacted and changed by the invasion of Ukraine. Later, I speak to Elena Polyakova, managing editor of the English-language news site Ukrainska Pravda, about her experiences as a journalist in the war. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 5th of August, day 163. Today I'm joined by assistant comment editor Francis Dernley and our senior reporter and history correspondent Daniel Kapura. Before we get into that discussion, however, here is the latest news from Ukraine. After five months of fighting, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky this week described the pressure his armed forces were under in the eastern Donbass region as hell. Moscow is seeking to control the largely Russian-speaking Donbass, comprised of Lugansk and Donetsk provinces, where pro-Moscow separatists seized territory after the Kremlin annexed Crimea to the south in 2014. Zelensky spoke of fierce fighting around the town of Avdivka and the fortified village of Piski, where Ukraine has acknowledged its Russian foes' partial success in recent days. Zelensky has also hit back at Amnesty International after the human rights group accused Ukraine in a report of endangering civilians by basing troops in residential areas. Zelensky took a swipe at the organisation, claiming it was trying to shift responsibility from the aggressor to the victim. Quote, there cannot be, even hypothetically, any condition under which any Russian attack on Ukraine becomes justified, he said. Elsewhere, three grain ships have left Ukrainian ports, while the first inbound cargo vessel since Russia's invasion was due in Ukraine later in the day. And finally, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has arrived in Sochi, southern Russia, for talks with Vladimir Putin. The pair are expected to discuss ties between the two countries, including the potential for increased economic and trade deals. Today, to discuss the events of recent weeks, taking a slightly longer view of the news today on Friday and around the world, I'm joined by senior correspondent and The Telegraph's history correspondent, Daniel Kapura, and our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley. Um, Dan, can I start with you? Um, the big big news this week outside of Ukraine has been uh, Taiwan. We've had the visit of Nancy Pelosi to the island, the Chinese reaction to that. The Ukraine war, obviously a, a world away from this, but Chinese, American and Taiwanese reaction and how they're reading the events of that war are hugely important. What are your thoughts uh, uh, on this around Taiwan? Hi, Ron. Uh, hi, David. Yes. Um, so, Regular listeners will have uh, tuned in and, and heard Sophia, our, our um, fantastic Beijing correspondent, discussing the, the Chinese perspective on this. And, and I think I agree with pretty much everything she said. Um, you know, the, the Chinese, while they may have been put off slightly by what's gone on in Ukraine, they will also be watching and learning. And one can never overestimate um, the way in which nationalism can can cloud judgment. And no doubt that uh, there'll be plenty in Beijing who think, oh, we're much better than the Russians. We won't make the same mistakes as them. Um, so we, we've heard at length about the, uh, the the Chinese perspective. I think the American perspective here is is quite interesting. Um, 
you know, in the lead up to Ukraine, no one was ever in any doubt that um, the Americans would not intervene. Uh, the question was always how much might they support the Ukrainians. But but Taiwan op- was always sort of um, sat in this very um, unique position um, within uh, sort of US foreign policy. Um, what you have is something uh, which is known as, you know, diplomats love to call strategic amb- ambiguity or sometimes constructive ambiguity, depending on the situation, which is effectively where both sides agree on common terminology, um, in this case, the one China policy, while having completely different understandings and of interpretations of what that means. And it's not a problem so long as uh, the issue doesn't doesn't rise to the top of the inbox. Um, you can both sort of say, ah, yes, we agree on the one China policy while actually technically disagreeing on, on what it means. Um, and obviously to the Beijing, it means that Taiwan is a, is a rebellious breakaway province that will eventually be uh, reunited with the mainland. Uh, and to the Americans, it means that Taiwan is a proper, prosperous, self-governing territory that never will be um, united unless it wants to be democratically um, with with uh, mainland China. Uh, I think where where Ukraine plays into this and is interesting, not so much on top of the idea of, of deterrence for for um, Beijing, is that the lessons that that you can draw from the Korean War and how Taiwan sort of got drawn into the American umbrella. So. The 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 history of how the Korean War started, why it started, is, is slightly debated. But very briefly, um, uh, Kim Il-sung, the uh, leader of um, North Korea at the time, the uh, grandfather of the current uh, Kim in charge, um, got permission from Stalin in Moscow to invade and the backing of Mao and did so at the start of 1950. Now, in the run-up to that, there was the, Amer- the Americans were in many ways trying to pursue this strategic ambiguity um, type policy. Um, and there's a sort of famous speech in January of 1950 uh, by Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, in which he explicitly, and this is interesting, he stepped away from strategic ambiguity, st- specifically stated which countries were in, in Asia were in the American um, defensive perimeter, uh, which is basically Japan, the Philippines, and very clearly not Korea and uh, Taiwan. Uh, now, Stalin is believed to have interpreted that to mean, well, if we invade Korea, nothing will happen. Um, the other important context is that the Americans had been uh, looking to withdraw their troops who'd been there since the end of the Second World War and, and did so. Um, that was despite CIA warnings to President Truman that uh, it would likely lead to an invasion and, and the loss of South Korea. Um, so you had this context of this is where American strategic ambiguity, American deterrence failed. Um, and the end result was a very long war in which um, the United States involved uh, the United Nations, um, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of countries from the US through to Britain, Australia, even Colombia, uh, sent troops uh, to Korea. Following that, there was a much sort of um, stronger hardening of, of um, the American uh, deterrent approach. So this actually this is the point at which Taiwan gets sucked into um, the American defensive umbrella. Um, the Seventh Fleet was sent to the to the Taiwan Strait, uh, greatly upsetting Mao, which sort of contributed to his later intervention in the war. Um, and yes, it's at this point that, that the Americans decide that actually, no, every every inch of territory is important, in, including Taiwan. And then since then, you've had this um, knowledge that the Americans would at some point intervene if the Chinese tried to uh, invade. But China was never really in a position where it was strong enough to do so. And now now maybe that balance is changing. Uh, and we're seeing with Ukraine uh, that this strategic ambiguity is starting to starting to disappear um, officially, it's still the policy of the United States to not really say what they would do. 
Um, but we've seen Joe Biden on multiple occasions now uh, say that the United States would come to the defense of, of um, Taiwan. We've seen Nancy Pelosi visit Taiwan and effectively um, make clear that it's an ally. Um, so I think this, you're seeing now this, this disintegration almost of, of a policy that sustained the United States in Asia throughout the Cold War right up until you know, the last sort of five, ten years when Beijing has become much, much more powerful. And, and do you think this is partly because um, through the United States' response and support of Ukraine, as you said, you know, the United States doesn't like to say in concretely what it would do, but now, now we know the Chinese can look to, to Ukraine and get a pretty good readout of what American support on the ground in the intelligence sphere, military sphere, economic sphere, w- what that actually looks like. I- I'm wondering how, how do you think this changes the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's you know, there are important uh, differences to note. Um, the United States has been arming Taiwan for decades. So Taiwan has a very sophisticated military. Um, at the same time, there are concerns that they don't spend enough. Um, they're too reliant on the fact that the Americans would um, turn up and rescue them. Um, Taiwan really could be making efforts to be actually a bit more like Ukraine, you know, a, a, a tougher nut to crack um, harder to swallow you know it's a mountainous it's a big mountainous island there's lots of ways that you could make it a very very difficult place to conquer that maybe the Taiwanese are not doing because they're reliant on the United States but also geographically you know we talk I know Sophia talked about how it'd be a much bigger challenge um, to invade Taiwan because you know it would be the greatest uh, seaborne airborne invasion of all time you know it would dwarf D-Day bigger distances um, more sophisticated technology all this stuff but at the same time uh, Taiwan is an island. It's very, very far away from the United States. And, um, you know, most of its military bases, it's got some in Okinawa and places. But uh, Chinese um, missile systems could potentially deny the area to uh, US warships, uh, aircraft carriers and the like, which would make it a very different situation. And you could have possibly, in theory, the United States sort of looking on impotently from several hundred uh, miles away, not not able to, to intervene. Um, so I think the, 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 those differences are, are important. But I think what's going on here, the, the key thing to, to understand is that uh, I think Ukraine has shown, um, as Syria did in the previous decade, as Korea did in the 1950s, that when you let your, um, the strength of your deterrence wilt, uh, when you let it be believed um, that you won't intervene, that you won't do the most... Uh, do your utmost to protect an ally. That's when you. That's when you see your opponents take advantage. That's when you see them um, step in. You see people intervene that you don't want to intervene. Whether that's Putin in Syria or um, North Korea invading South Korea. Um, and I think that really is 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 what the Americans are, are realizing now is that it's much cheaper, even if it means spending billions and trillions on on defense. It's much cheaper to deter the Chinese from. Uh, invading Taiwan than it will be to deal with the uh, with the fallout if they do. Just one thought from me before we throw to Francis Sternley. Um Dan, you said that you know if if the invasion of Taiwan was to go ahead, it would be a, a, a there would be an, a seaborne aspect which would be which would dwarf D Day, and that would of course almost be impossible to hide. We saw in the lead up to the Ukraine war, uh, the British and American uh, intelligence services warning of what uh, of this build-up of Russian troops on the border. And they, you know, there, there was debate in the West about how much to believe this, how much this was a feint, um, whether it was just R- Russia um, demonstrating its strength and it wouldn't really happen. I guess, I guess you wouldn't have that 
questionable. There wouldn't be so much of a debate around this with with, with Taiwan just because of the the huge the sheer amount of material you'd ne- you'd need to do anything. Um, Francis, I know you've got many many thoughts. Do you want to come in? Sure. Well, I thought it's really really interesting hearing Daniel's perspective on this question of of strategic ambiguity, and I think actually Ukraine in a way, has uh, underlined the conundrum of strategic ambiguity. We spoke, I remember, very early on in the conflict. We were very critical, really, of, of, of President Biden and other powers who were, who were making very, very clear what their red lines were with regard to escalation in the war. Because, of course, it makes it much easier for Putin when making calculations in the Kremlin, saying, OK, well, we know that they're not going to create a no-fly zone because they see that as being um, uh, of escalating things. Um, and that means, obviously, that he can adapt accordingly, change strategy, and it makes it much easier for your enemy. That's one argument. Um, but, of course, the other argument is the one here that, that, that Daniel talks about, which is, is the danger of being too ambiguous and what can happen uh, and how things can, can, can escalate into a far more worse direction when you are not clear. Now, maybe if... Um, if the West had been much stronger, um, and this is my view on, on what would have happened had Ukraine been uh, invaded prior to the invasion, then I think it may well have, have not taken place. Indeed, it was because there was this so-called strategic ambiguity around the Ukraine that I think gave Putin the boldness and the assurance that he could act in a certain way and would essentially be able to uh, get away with it and wouldn't unify the West in the manner that he has. Korean War is another good example of where that took place for the reasons that Daniels just described. But actually, of course, the, perhaps the most famous one and the one that has the biggest warning for history is, is the First World War. Um, there's now a, quite a strong historiographical thought um, uh, amongst uh, amongst historians, particularly Niall Ferguson, I'm thinking of in his book, The Pity of War, where he talks about that if Britain had made its strategic opinion clear on what it would mean if, if Germany were to invade Belgium, then it may well have been that the, that, that the German uh, forces would not have taken the risk of doing so. But because uh, the British Foreign Secretary, Gray, never made his position clear, um, it meant that they actually felt that they could potentially get away with it and Britain wouldn't, wouldn't react. Now, we know, obviously, that, that Britain was not going to stand by and, and allow um, Belgium to be taken by the German forces. And we all know what came as a consequence of that. So I think this is a really interesting um, conundrum. And I say I don't think there's actually a, a, any right or wrong answer, because, of course, it is important to try and be ambiguous and not make things easier for your enemy so that they can sort of try and outflank you, outplay you strategically. But also there is, as I say, these huge dangers where if you're not clear on what your position is, that things can, can, can then um, escalate in a, in a damaging direction. Just whilst we're on the subject of Korea, I think it's also worth mentioning that um, there was a a very interesting factor in all this, which then shaped, I'd argue, the the, the rest of the 20th century, not only for the policies of um, uh, during the Cold War and the fact that the West was willing to fight these proxy wars to contain communism. So the policy of containment, particularly pursued by America, but also on the on the nuclear question, because what took place was that Douglas MacArthur, who had led the, uh, the, the, the American forces in the Pacific during the Second World War, he was in command in Korea. And uh, it was his view that once the Chinese then invaded from the north, um, that the the way to win the war was just like at the end of the Second World War was to drop drop a nuclear bomb. Um, on North Korea and to deter the the Chinese forces and to secure a quick military victory. And his argument was, of course, that this would militarily save lives. He was thinking as a general, you know, this is how can I win the, 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 this war most quickly? Use the nuclear weapons. And of course, this is at the time when America was really the only power that could, could use that. And so they were thinking in those lines. It was President Truman who then actually fired Douglas MacArthur and said, well, no, I'm not willing to, uh, to do this. Um, this would be hugely damaging for world stability. Um, we don't 
want to, to, to encourage the use of these weapons as being a tool of conventional warfare, having seen the, the, the severe ramifications of that on the people of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and, and as I say, Douglas McCarthy was actually fired by Truman as a consequence of that. And that actually, I think, shaped the tone of the Cold War in a way that was actually hugely beneficial. Because, of course, if it had been just accepted that nuclear weapons were another tactical weapon, then who knows what that would have meant for the, for the, uh, for the rest of the 20th century and, and with regard to, to conflicts now. So Korea is, is really a forgotten conflict, but one which I think suddenly, not only just because of Taiwan, but also because of what we're seeing now um, in, in Ukraine, is, is one that really deserves more of our attention because it involves involves a lot of the, the key players, Russia, China, um, and also these sort of forces. But how do you fight a, a war of principle But when it, it's um, not quite clear how best to pursue a strategy that's successful in a long, long-term form uh, and the one that doesn't risk a sort of World War III type scenario? So a very relevant conflict and, and one that, that, as I say, deserves further study, I think. I don't know, Dan, if you want to come back on any of that or, or, or add anything, or should we talk more about um, how... Uh, the US's policy uh, and specifically the Republican Party is, is changing because of what's happening in, in Ukraine. Yeah, I think I think that's a, it's a good time to uh, to come on to that. Um, yeah, so uh, for, for readers who, for listeners, sorry, uh, who um, have not been following closely, um, obviously the um, the move to get Finland and Sweden into NATO is slowly moving through the gears in the various um, democratic bodies of, of, of member states and in the United States in particular, um, the Senate voted um, earlier this week on whether to um, support uh, the accession of Finland and Sweden, um, voted overwhelmingly in favour, 95-4, uh, one against and one abstention. Um, well, uh, technically in the US, you don't abstain, you sort of vote and say present, um, sort of a quirk of, of, of the Senate. Um, that uh, present vote was Rand Paul, you know, uh, famous or infamous, depending how you see it, a libertarian who doesn't really believe the US should engage with the world at all. The vote against is the interesting one, that it was just this one guy, Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri, um, who his argument was it would uh, spread the United States too thin, it would spread NATO too thin, we've got to focus on China, um, you know, Russia's a declining power, all this stuff, sort of classic uh, Donald Trump arguments. And, and Josh Hawley is very much a Trumpian. Uh, figure. What's interesting is that um, the rest of the party uh, turned against him very quickly. Um, he was criticised by figures like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, all leading uh, Trumpians, some of whom have uh, their own ambitions to run in um, to be the Republican candidate at the next presidential election. Um, I think that says something very interesting about um, American foreign policy, but more specifically, uh, Republican foreign policy. So um, you know, whatever the Republicans' domestic policies were, they were always um, fairly uh, reliably uh, pro-NATO, uh, pro-Western alliance, transatlanticists, all this stuff. And then Trump came along and shook all of that. And, you know, there was talk of ditching NATO. Uh, Macron jumped on the bandwagon and called NATO brain dead, all this stuff. And, you know, there really were worries about what, um, how NATO would survive. Now, obviously, you know, we've talked on this podcast at length about how Ukraine has uh, revitalized um, NATO. Um, and actually, just to throw back to what we were saying about Korea, but Korea was the spur that made NATO a real alliance, not a paper alliance. Um, but I think actually as well, what's important is that it's it's not just revitalized NATO internationally, but revitalized NATO in the United States and in the Republican Party. Um, you know, China and Russia are basically bipartisan issues in the US now. There is, um, you know, when Nancy Pelosi said she was going to go to Taiwan, despite um, being advised not to, um, Mike Pompeo, um, who also has um, 
ambitions to be president and uh, was secretary of state under under Trump said I'll come along and join you um you know and and him and Pelosi couldn't be more different uh politically um it's, it's not a wedge issue um now that Trump is momentarily it seems off the scene the issue of Russia has has lost its wedge value um and and it's interesting we may finally have this sort of period again of 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 relative um consensus on foreign policy, obviously the the question, uh, the big question, the uh, the elephant in the room is Donald Trump and what happens if he does decide to run, if he secures the candidacy in twenty twenty four. His comments so far on Ukraine have been relatively mild, you know, sort of claims that there wouldn't have been a war if he was still president. That uh, he did at one point say that Ukraine should have done a deal before the invasion, you know, handed over Crimea. Um, but considering the stuff that Trump normally says, um, not the worst stuff he's ever he's ever done. Um, you know, he's a man who likes to be popular. And, and the question is, uh, have the Republicans firmed up around this um, very strong view on Ukraine um, and NATO as the sort of 95 to, to 2 vote shows um, to the extent that even Donald Trump couldn't upend that? That's absolutely fascinating. Thanks, Dan. Francis, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the points Dan raised? I'm particularly interested in how the Amer- how the way America sees itself potentially has changed thanks to Ukraine and what that might mean uh, for the future. Sure. Well, yes. I mean, this, this is a really interesting uh, theme, I think, in American politics. And I think it's just worth saying, if we're taking the long, long-term view, which, is, of course, is part of the thinking behind this episode, is offering us a little bit more long-term historical perspective, is that America is actually traditionally an isolationist power. I mean, it was always very sceptical of, of, of foreign intervention uh, traditionally for obvious reasons initially um, after its foundation fears around what uh, an interventionist policy might mean um, for its own long-term future fears that it might trigger a war with Britain which of course it actually eventually did in 1812 which could then uh, threaten its its long-term future um, it wasn't strong enough essentially to be able to defend against the world's great empires at that time so there were fears around that and that was a huge discussion indeed within the republic um, between the sort of Jeffersonian factions who believed in intervention in in, in France to encourage the revolution and those who were sort of more of the John Adams bent second American president after Washington who believed more sceptically about preventing war because of this stability question. Now, of course, as I say, for all of that and the Monroe Doctrine and all of these things, um, there's also always been this this obviously... uh, it being the, the superpower, particularly in the early 20th century, that it became inevitable that America would become uh, uh, dragged into conflicts and, and would do the uh, sort of the old, the old uh, idea that it would do the right thing. But often it would take a long time for it to be persuaded to do so. Of course, that happened in World War One in 1917. And then it happened um, again after um, the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. But it's worth saying that in both instances, the presidents of the time, um, Wilson in the case of World War One and uh, an FDR in the case of World War Two, actually were wanting to do much more than they felt that the American public were willing to let them to do until, firstly, the sinking of the Lusitania and the um, uh, Zimmerman, uh, I think it was the Zimmerman um, uh, telegram, um, which which sort of brought them into the World War One, and then, of course, uh, Pearl Harbor in, in, the, in the case of the Second World War. So quite often the, the leaders, are, or the presidents, should I say, are, are actually um, more interventionist than the American public. But Obviously, and, and that strand, as I say, is, and as to, to allude to what Daniel was talking about, still exists particularly prominently within the Republican Party. And we say, obviously, make America great again, America first, this sort of Trump doctrine, um, which is much more sceptical of foreign intervention and, and putting American concerns first. Um, but I, as, as you say, rightly point out, Ukraine, I think, is, is also one of these places where um, you, you see 
the the sort of American desire uh, and the Western desire, you could say, to actually be defending its values more robustly come also to the fore. And it's been interesting comparing that to what's been taking place amongst the sort of further right um, in Europe, where you see the remarks by Marine Le Pen, the um, uh, leader of the the, what was formerly the National Front in France this week, where she was saying uh, effectively that, that, uh, that, that the war should end as soon as possible, that sanctions are terrible for Europe and they're good for Russia, all of these sort of things, which was um, really sort of playing into, I think, the sort of Russian narrative more. You also see in Italy as well now that it looks like the next um, uh, prime minister there is going to be more sympathetic to that point of view. So we're really seeing two different um, strands within within uh, right wing thinking um, on uh, playing out um, as triggered by Ukraine is also relevant to Taiwan as as well. And I don't think they're in they're necessarily in conflict, but they are. Uh, and at the very least, a significant thing, and they're, but they're not something new. Um, they're not they're, they're not a novelty. This is something that is as old as America itself, and arguably is as old as as the West itself. And so, I think um, will we'll be many more twists and turns on this to come. Well, thank you, Francis, and thank you, Dan, as well. Um, could we move away from talking about the US and talk a little bit about Turkey? We've had quite a few questions into the podcast about Turkey's role, Turkey's history between uh, Russia and the West. Um, and I wondered if, Dan and Francis, you could throw a little bit more light on this, uh, just so we understand the kind of diplomatic and the geopolitical moves Turkey is making now, brokering the grain agreement, all that kind of thing. But put, put, could we put that in, in some historical context? Sure. Well, I'm happy to lead on on Turkey because I know I talked about this a little bit last week. I mean, obviously, the traditional role of Turkey in European history, arguably since... uh uh, since its foundation uh, as the sort of second Rome, as Byzantium, as Constantinople, has been as this sort of bridge between uh, West and East. Uh, and uh, indeed, that was the reason why Constantine founded it, is it saw that Rome was no longer going to be geographically in the location that would be most beneficial for the long-term prosperity of the Roman Empire, hence why he moved to East. And so, obviously, it was um, uh, then uh, became Istanbul, Constantinople, after the seizure of it uh, by the Sultan in 1453. Um, and, uh, but even so, there has been this... Because of its location, this this sort of straddling of of two of two worlds, and I think we can see um, Turkey's actions now in that same context, which is as we've talked about many times in the past. In many ways, it has been on the Western side of the argument. It's been providing uh, numerous uh, weapons support for uh, for the Ukrainian forces, particularly in the form of drones. Of course, there have been um, some quite uh, uh, strongly worded critiques uh, around what Russia has done. There's also been the fact that they have uh, permitted, um, despite early protestations of, of Sweden's and Finland's ascension into NATO. Um, so in that sense, they're, they're sort of more on the Western side. Of course, they are a NATO power as well, which is, is very much worth underlining here uh, and is relevant to this. And yet at the same time, um, we've all, of course saw that the president of Turkey shaking hands with Russia, um, sorry, with not shaking hands with Russia, with Putin, should I say, um, a fortnight ago and striking this deal around grain. Um, and in, in some ways, some people have seen that as sort of a betrayal of the Western opinion, um, whereas others uh, are saying actually that this is what you need. You know, you need to have somebody who can straddle both West and East uh, and act as this sort of broker between both sides. I think also we should see this in a sort of realpolitik sense, which is that um, Turkey uh, knows that it has lots to gain from this in the sense that it 
its power and position is, is strengthened in a time of, of, of tension between East and West. And as a consequence, it is using this to, to gain influence, particularly in, in the Middle East, and also to gain influence um, uh, domestically and, and, and within the European context. Um, so it's a very interesting position that it's sort of laying out here. Um, and I think one that, that um, historians no doubt will, will debate um, considerably. But I think also, as I've talked about in the past on, on the podcast, the other issue around Turkey is, of course, that this is a, a state that in recent years um, has faced considerable inner, inner turmoil. I mean, there was even an attempted coup on the now president um, only a, a matter of years ago. Um, and so, of course, uh, th- that is playing into all this and needing to appear stronger than perhaps it actually is on these questions. But it has also become much more Islamist and more autocratic. And um, and in that sense, this is, of course, going to be a concern for NATO and for Western powers, because not only may it lean it more in the Russia's direction of, 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 of travel, but more broadly than that, you could argue that it undermines the sort of NATO po- project in many ways, because if you're if NATO, as it traditionally always was, is this sort of entity trying to defend the principle of democracy, the, depend, the principles of, of, of liberalism in, in Europe, but on a sort of global context, then, then can you really say that you're doing that when you actually have members um, who, who don't seem to conform to those principles? I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a problem that many people can then call, call you as being hypocritical um, and, and sort of uh, criticising other nations, being proactive in, in, in doing so uh, in a way that well, when in a sense, not actually seeing that through on your, in your own backyard, as it were. And I think that is an issue um, and one that, that no doubt is on the minds of many uh, Western diplomats. Um, but I think we should be somewhat reassured by Turkey's stance in the war. Um, uh, listeners will no doubt, I'm no, no, who will know by now that I'm pretty hawkish on these things. But what I mean by that is that Turkey could have used this moment to, to lurch more to the east, lurch more in the direction of treasure of Russia. It has not done so, partly for its own beneficial reasons, but also because I think it sees a direction of travel in terms of Russia's long term future economically as a consequence of this war. And that is wel- a welcome development. Anything that, that keeps Turkey closer to the west has to be seen as a positive thing, I think. So hopefully that answers uh, our listeners' question. Thanks, Francis. Dan, do you want to add anything to that? Or shall we go back to the US? I know you think there's a lot more to be said. There is. I will, I will just quickly sort of um, give my, my two pennies worth on, on Turkey. I think, um, I mean, just quickly on, on the, the um, sort of democratic element, I think that's, it's an interesting transition, isn't it? Because when uh, NATO was founded, you had members like Portugal, Greece, Turkey itself, that, that were in no way democratic. And at the time, the argument was never, you know, it's about defending democracy. It was more just not being uh, communist. Um, and I think even now you can make an argument that it's for, you know, standing up for the for the rule of law um, and the rules-based order. Um, obviously, we tend to only accept um, nations that have made democratic transitions. I think there's a couple of things going on with Turkey that are worth remembering. So it has become more autocratic and more Islamist, as, as Francis has set out. But but I think that there's been a bit too much pessimism in the West um, because Erdogan hasn't totally killed off the democratic system. He's not powerful enough to do that. He hasn't needed to, really. It's a bit like Orban in Hungary. You know, yes, Orban has done a lot to undermine democracy and free media. But at the same time, he's popular enough that he doesn't really need to do that. Um, and there are elections coming up. Uh, Erdogan's in a real mess because Turkish inflation is is really soaring. M- huge, huge levels of inflation. And of course, made worse by Erdogan because he's one of the only people in the world who believes that lowering interest rates will uh, somehow tame inflation. Um, so he's got a real fight on his hands to, to keep the level of political control that he has. Um, and so it's useful for him to have a political fight 
over um, NATO, over Sweden um, and Finland. And, and we shouldn't forget the, the Kurdish element in Turkey, which is always a big part of um, Erdogan's uh, electoral appeal. But, but I also think, um, you know, we should be pragmatic about this. There was a good uh, piece a few weeks ago by Gideon Rackman at the FT, you know, saying, is it time to consider ditching uh, Turkey, chucking it out of NATO in exchange for Finland and Sweden? And he said, absolutely not. Um, because you look at the key strategic uh, position it occupies, you know, the Bosphorus is of massive importance. The Black Sea, if Turkey were to be pushed further towards Moscow or just further away from the West, suddenly looks like a Russian lake again. Um, you, it borders on um, Syria and Iraq. Um, it, pro- it plays a hugely important, um, some would say distasteful role in holding back huge numbers, millions and millions of refugees from the Middle East who would otherwise be in Europe causing much more uh, political instability, whether you think it's right or, or wrong to, to block the refugees, you can't deny the huge amounts of political instability that the refugee crisis caused in 2015, 2016. Um, so there's all these very um, important realpolitik reasons for trying to keep Turkey sweet, even if it feels incredibly distasteful to, um, to be sucking up to Erdogan effectively. Um, but yes, on on the US, I just wanted to, to go back to some of the stuff that Francis said. Um, I mean, all you know, I agree with a lot of it. Um, I think perhaps the Americans mythologize their isolationism a bit too much. Um, there's an excellent book called How to Hide an Empire. I think that's the correct name, but it's something along those lines, all about the American empire that, that they built up in the late 19th century. You know, the Philippines was an American colony for a long time, taken from the Spanish. Um, Puerto Rico, obviously, is still um, US territory, but not a state. Um, which, again, taken from the Spanish. Um, There's a war over Cuba, uh, the Mexican-American War. Um, obviously, at the time, it was more focused on, on, on domestic expansion. So I think that they, they sometimes take this isolationist um, view. It's sort of unhelpfully uh, mythologized. But, but I think that the interesting thing here is that um, time and time again, you see American presidents who come in with a domestic agenda, which either is derailed by foreign policy or they find that foreign policy is their only outlet because they lose control of Congress, because, um, you know, they become weakened at home. And obviously, the US presidency is much more powerful when it comes to foreign policy than domestic policy. You saw it with uh, Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, who was derailed by the war, even though he was a president who did huge amounts to build up the American welfare state. Um, you know, his, uh, his Great Society project, which, you know, still came off, but probably would have been much more significant, a much more substantial legacy had it not been for the Vietnam War and the huge amounts of money uh, spent there. Um, You saw it with George W. Bush, you know, it's a fascinating documentary uh, last year around the anniversary of uh, 9-11, where, you know, they have interviews with George Bush. And he said, yes, I campaigned as a domestic president, I campaigned to stop us getting involved in all this nonsense in Somalia and um, the Balkans and places like that and concentrate on on solving America's domestic problems. And barely six months into his presidency, uh, nine months in, um, suddenly he was forced to become a foreign policy president um, and then got the United States involved in in, in two of its longest wars ever. Um, I think with Biden, he's still fighting the tide and you can still see that he is trying to be a domestic president. Um, and in some ways, it's working. You know, you've seen this sudden reversal by Joe Manchin on the um, on the climate change bill, and, and maybe actually he can eke out some some final uh, domestic achievements. But uh, the Democrats are very likely to lose control of the House of Representatives um, in November, at which point Biden will be limited to uh, executive orders um, to get anything done. 
And you may well see, I think, again, this um, pattern of pivoting to foreign policy, despite Biden being a president who, you know, ended uh, the US involvement in in Afghanistan, um, who wanted to do uh, domestic policy, tackle climate change, tackle inequality, um, all these uh, problems that are afflicting the United States domestically and and a country exhausted by by two decades of war. Um, Just one one further point on that, I think, on the flip side of this is that... um, Oddly, with Ukraine, we've sort of seen this strange um, acceleration of a process that you see uh, again and again in in American post-war history, where um, I think Afghanistan, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the botched withdrawal, um, which, again, bears um, some interesting resemblance to uh, Korea in in, in 1949, um, although we haven't obviously seen US troops go back in. But but that was another nadir in, in, in American confidence in its belief in interventionism that, you know, the American public had turned its back on on liberal interventionism, on on getting involved in affairs abroad, and and you saw that with the end of the Vietnam War. Um, and usually, you know, it takes a long time before the United States gets its confidence back. Um, but in some ways, I think you've seen with with Ukraine is that it turbocharged that process, where within weeks of this really quite embarrassing collapse in Afghanistan, all of a sudden the U.S. has got its mojo back, and it's helping humble, supposedly a great power, um, through its allies. I wish we had more time. This is all so interesting. I guess, can we talk a little bit about that great power, about Russia? Um, one of the themes we've seen from Russian propaganda is this linking between the USSR and and today. So we've seen sort of Russian um, USSR uh, era flags in Mariupol, for example. Um, Dan, Dan and Francis, uh, well, specifically Dan as, as a historian, what do you think are the similarities and the the um, con- these, yeah the, the, the continuities between today's regime and um, the Soviet regime. But also, what, what are the differences? What should our listeners be sort of aware of? Well, I'll start with the, with the differences. Um, I was on this podcast um, a couple of months ago, I think, uh, discussing the fact that, you know, when it comes to realpolitik and how you deal with great powers, it's important to remember that the goal of realpolitik was stability. I'm sure listeners will remember this discussion. And, and one of the key points I was making is that Russia is a declining power. Um, it's shrinking. Um, you know, it's had staggering population loss um, last year, the year before. Uh, throughout 2021, it, it lost perhaps a million people, I think, is the figure they're putting on it. You know, 660,000 to COVID. But then on top of that, the regular loss of, of, of half a million people effectively. Um, the United, you know, the Russian government is aware of this. And, and, and um, Dmitry Peskov, the, the spokesman for... Um, for the for President Putin said, you know, it's it's something he said Russia is haunted by two holes in its demographics, the Second World War and the collapse of the USSR, which I think probably tells you that second bit quite a lot about the uh, the psychology behind trying to reclaim Ukraine. So it's something they're aware of. Uh, it's only getting worse. You know, it's like interest on a big debt. It's going to compound and, and the shrinking Russian population will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I think we also have to bear in mind that, again, we're only talking about Russia. We're not talking about the Soviet Union. Too often when people talk about the Soviet Union, they they think about Russia. They talk about Russia. They forget the enormous um, contribution that the other Soviet states um, made. I mean, just uh, just one small example to kind of give you a bit of perspective. Uzbekistan. Um lost the uh, almost the same number of men about 400,000 in the second world war as the united kingdom did you know and that's sort of a fairly minor part of 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 the soviet union and of the soviet war effort so you know it's it's an over, it's a simplification to to talk about russia when when you mean the soviet union uh, i think in terms of the the um the 
the similarities, the continuities. I think what you have is this um, severe paranoia. I think we've seen that around Putin. Um, you know, a figure who's emerged from a period of chaos, um, uh, used his contacts and his his political skills to leverage himself into a, into a position of absolute power. I think you've got this paranoia. Um, Putin is he's not he's nowhere near achieving the totalitarian state that, that Stalin built. But, you know, I'm sure he would like to eventually um, create this ability to um, observe every citizen to have every other citizen be be an informant um you do see this 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 paranoia but but in a lot of ways he's a pound shop stalin you know um and then i think the other sort of final point to, to be made and this is similar to the population one is that um you know the the ussr for all its economic problems you know it was propped up by oil but it was still a big economy and also an autarkic one you know it wasn't plugged into the global uh, economic system like uh, russia was until the start of this year. Um, it wasn't reliant on on um, outside knowledge, um, technology transfers, and the like in the way that Russia is today. And it was by oil was by no means quite as dominant um, in its economy as as it is the economy of Russia today. You know, it was a real, genuine, functioning economy. And, and what you have today with Russia is is a massively declining population, huge amounts of brain drain, um, and you know, entirely reliant on on oil and gas basically to survive economically um and i'll just say one last 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 point on that um on the uh, population um issue because i think that's that's quite interesting as well is that um it plays a lot into the politics that you see um not just in russia but in eastern europe and other places where where strong men are popular which is this it creates a resentment when you have um when you have a shrinking population when you have the brain drain um you know these countries were at the end of the cold war kind of shown the promise of the West and told that if they modernized quickly and, um, you know, had sort of shock therapy and, and became capitalists, that they too would soon be like the West. And in some cases, it has happened, although with difficulty, like like Poland. Um, but one of the consequences of that was these immense brain drains, which is, is demoralizing on a number of levels for the people left behind, because one, they see themselves as, as, you know, not worthy of the West and become resentful of those who of the West and of those who are able to go there and study and live and, and, and make lots of money. And then also it um, makes you no longer believe in the future of your country because you look around and there are no young people and there's no one with skills and potential and, and you see the decline. It makes you deeply pessimistic. And it's that... Um, thing that then makes countries uh, incredibly vulnerable, susceptible to the uh, populist uh, strongman demagogue message. Um, and I think that's something that we have seen in uh, Russia, which again is, is very different to, to what was going on with Russia in the 1930s um, under Stalin. This is absolutely fascinating. Just to put a quick number on that, um, the State Department in July estimated that uh, the number of Ukrainians uh, forcibly deported, interrogated and detained by the Russian state numbers between 900,000 and 1.6 million, inclu- including 260,000 children. Um, and as you said, for, for many of them, we, we don't really know what, what's happening. We know that some have been filtrated back back to the West. Um, I know James Kilner up in Estonia was, was, uh, was interviewing quite a few of them. So maybe we should get James back at some point to tell us what more he's learned about the fate of these, these people taken by Russia. Um, Francis, do you want to add anything to that from Daniel? Yeah, I mean, this is it's sort of how long have you got really comparing uh, Putin's regime with those of, of, of Stalin or, or Lenin. I mean, I think that it's, it's I'd say it's it, it, no doubt a huge subject of, 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 of discussion. But I, one thing I would just add to this is 
in, whilst the I agree with Daniel in saying that he's a sort of pound shop style, and we should be obviously very grateful for that, given the millions upon millions of people who who were killed as a consequence of, of of Stalin's actions. Nonetheless, I think it's worth saying, for the reasons I was talking about yesterday, that many of the essential um, apparatus and requirements of of of, the, of a state as brutal as Stalin's are now in place as a consequence of what's happened in Ukraine. Um, the sort of mass censorship that's been enforced, the, the new uh, rules about what can happen to you legally if you talk about it being a war rather than a special operation, all of these types of things. Um, it is made a state that is far more suppressive towards its people um, than, than prior to the war. And of course, that was a, an essential component of, of, of Stalin and Lenin's state. There's always been this sort of mythos that's been built that Stalin in some ways betrayed the idealised revolution of Lenin. In fact, it was Lenin that created the Cheka and some of his letters um, about what he wanted to see done to the Kulaks are, are really um, as villainous and, and monstrous as anything that Stalin said. So um, we shouldn't believe this, um, this narrative that, that Stalin corrupted what was otherwise a pure revolution. It was always um, built on violence and built on, on state terror. Um, but that said, I think um, it, 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 there is an interesting question here, which is, is to what extent is uh, Putin, somebody like Putin, re acting on sort of more pragmatic, real politique basis or a sort of ideological idealist basis? And I think one of the defining features of Lenin and Stalin is that whilst they were, of course, idealists in the sense of having this sort of communist ideology they wanted to see through, they were also pragmatic at the point of a bayonet in trying to, to carry this out. Lenin was making, willing to make several concessions with regard to re-injecting capitalism in temporarily in the early 1920s under the NUP policy in an attempt to try and um, ensure that, you know, the Bolsheviks themselves weren't overthrown. That obviously went against Marxist principles, but they were willing to do that for pragmatic reasons. And there are numerous other examples of that, which Stalin, of course, um, did later on, particularly in the Second World War. He was willing to make certain pragmatic things. I don't think if it, I think it's helpful to compare that with, say, a, a, an ideologue like um, Hitler who I think was was far more of a of a less he was not acting in the realm of pragmatism he was a true ideologue in the sense that of course he was willing to declare war on America that was not something that was a pragmatically wise for obvious reasons but he was willing to do that because of his ideology he was not pragmatic in the sense in the, in the manner in which he invaded the Soviet Union which was utterly bloodthirsty um, and uh, despite the fact that actually he was greeted as a liberator or the Nazi troops were initially greeted as a liberator in many quarters again his ideology um, um, undid him there, and and I think that the you know we should be very very thankful, as I said before, that that Hitler never got a nuclear bomb because I think he was somebody who, for his own ideological reasons, would have rather seen the world burn, you know, than than um, than face defeat. Um, whereas I don't think, and I think you can actually say this is. Uh, proven you know that that stalin was was knew that once the nuclear question was um was was now part and parcel of, of world politics was 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 willing to react accordingly and, and adopt a more sort of realpolitik stance as a consequence of that he didn't want to really risk nuclear war for all of the, the, the talk um, he didn't want to do that and I don't think that could be said about Hitler now what is Putin is Putin more of a of a, of a Hitler ideologue or is he more of a of a stalin realpolitik Perhaps he's a bit of both, um, but I think there is still probably more of the Stalin in him um, than uh, than the Hitler as things stand. But of course, that will be one of the great contested questions um, of, for historians in the coming years, I think. Um, Francis and Dan, can I ask for your final thoughts? What are the, what are the things you would want our listeners to take away and, and ponder and think about over the weekend? 
Well, I'll just sort of uh, carry on a little bit there from what, what Francis has said. And I think he's right about the pragmatism. I think, um, you know, I've said this before, borrowed it from Mark Gagliotti, but um, Putin likes to give off this image of the chess grandmaster who's, who's many moves ahead. And he's not. He's a judoka who, who takes advantage of temporary opportunities, doesn't have a big, long strategy, just goes where the opportunities take him, even if that ends up being a dead end. Um, and I think that is something that he has, uh, you know, that that's the similarity he does have with Stalin actually you know going back to what we were saying about Korea part of the reason there's a debate over why Stalin gave permission was because he wrote a letter to the Czech ambassador saying I wanted to draw the Americans into an Asian quagmire um, of course people like always forget that that letter was written sort of six months after um, the Americans had invaded so it was very much Stalin sort of um, changing the story to make himself look better but I think that's the important thing to remember with with Putin and when people talk about you know how will this war ever end and he's painted himself into a corner well actually you know he's he's a pragmatist and an opportunist in a lot of ways and I think that any way that he can see to get himself out while victorious may actually be the way that this war ends. I completely agree with that. Um, and I suppose my final thought is we didn't get onto this subject, but Daniel and I were just talking about it um, briefly beforehand, which is looking ahead and, and thinking about this in more sort of military historical questions is we're meant to be in peak fight, fighting season now. Um, but actually, that is not what is what we're, what we're seeing in terms of the kind of the, the, the actions taking place. Of course, it's incredibly vicious and bloody, but this isn't there are not huge scale operations currently taking place. Both have clearly sapped their strength in recent months and, and are fighting in a more sort of stalemate. Now, we obviously have talked already about um, the, the Ukrainian counterattack, which is, we believe, forthcoming. But nonetheless, this is a static period. And I think it's, it's worth underlining the fact that when we do reach winter, things are likely to slow down even more. And so I think the fact that we're not seeing decisive actions now is really significant because I think it means almost certainly now we are looking at a war that is going to go on for a very long time because this is the moment when action is taking place. And if we want to talk about, of course, um, historical comparisons in the Second World War, every season when winter began in Russia and during the, in the um, German military campaign there, the whole war basically stopped. Now, we don't know, of course, how mild the winter is going to be, but if it's a bad winter, it makes it very difficult to, to use weaponry, to use heavy armour, etc. Things can become, roads can become quagmires or um, can be, you know, big technology can become frozen, all of these sorts of things. That's going to be very relevant to uh, to, to, to the to the manner in which the war is fought long term. So I think that's just something that, again, trying to weave in some of the history there, but also some some some, some more day-to-day kind of updates is, is just worth making that point. Um, it, because I think it was a really interesting one. And Daniel, as I say, it was one of Daniel's um, points, but I think just worth mentioning it since we're looking at this sort of historical view, because I think it's a very interesting one and an interesting point that he makes there. Last week... The Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols, and myself were in Kyiv, Ukraine, talking to locals and prominent Ukrainian figures about the invasion and their experiences. On my final day, I spoke to Elina Polyakova, Managing Editor of Ukranska Pravda, the English-language news site of its Ukrainian paper, Ukranska Pravda. She spoke about being a journalist during the war, her own experiences, and, as you'll hear, we suffered from some interference from the local wildlife. Well, Alina, it's absolutely lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. Could you just tell us um, who you are and what you do here in Kyiv? Hey, nice to meet you too. My name is Alina Polyakova. I'm managing editor of the uh, English version of Ukrainska Pravda. It's one of the biggest online media in Ukraine. And uh, now we are covering the war 
And you, you, you told me that you started the English language version on the day of the invasion. Uh, tell us about that. How, how difficult was it to do? What, what, what steps did you have to take? I have slept over the war in the morning, so uh, I was a lucky one. But when I come to office in the morning, like it was uh, nine in the morning, uh, we decided that uh, we need to show the world what's going on because we need to fight Russian propaganda and show what's really goes in Ukraine. And that's why we decided to translate uh, the key news of our media and um, post it on Twitter. And uh, at the beginning, it was like uh, two person who who was speaking English not very bad and uh, they just translate that and put it uh, on our news feed and then we ask our friends from European Council uh, to help us and um, they post an announcement that people in Ukraine need help and uh, we found a lot of uh, volunteers native speakers uh, who edit our news they are from all over the world uh, we have um, volunteers from New Zealand from UK from Canada from Hungary from France and uh, we found um, volunteers to translate in Ukraine that were people who lost their jobs or uh, who didn't know what to do and they just translate all the news uh, about war and those volunteers, editors, volunteers uh, edit them and we post it on our website and um, it was like a week when we tried to launch it and then it was working and um, in the beginning of March, uh, we had almost one billion of visitors already. And how have you seen, since you launched the English language version, have, have, have visitors to the site gone up or down? What, what's the interest like um, uh, it's, people reading? It has correlation with Ukrainian version. Yeah. You know, um, at the first day, Ukrainian version uh, had seven billion uh, visitors and we had 30 billions of views, yeah. yes. And um, now, English version has like uh, 500,000, uh, 600,000. Now we have uh, 200, 300,000 and uh, Ukrainian version also has less visitors. Uh, but uh, we understand that it's okay. Uh, people just try to live their normal lives mm. and not uh, just scrolling the news feed. What's it like being a, being a Ukrainian journalist reporting on the war in your own country, it must be incredibly difficult to see the news coming through of towns where you know your family or friends live there. And how, how do you deal with that? Uh, it's hard uh, from that point that every city that you see is bombing, you have someone there. You have uh, relatives or you have friends or you have uh, colleagues there. And um, you ju it's personal for you, but you need to be a professional and you just need to take your emotions and put it in the box and then uh, take it uh, when you did your job. We are mostly political media, so now all our journalists uh, who wrote about politics, who wrote about economics, uh, who wrote about society, uh, everyone is writing about uh, war from different angles. Uh, like our political staff uh, write about uh, how negotiations goes on, uh, what can we do on those political fronts. Our economic uh, office uh, write about um, who gives us help, uh, what can we do like with the reconstruction of Ukraine, our, our victory. And uh, the society writes the stories of people who go through it and uh, it's uh, the most difficult part mm. as for me because uh, there are different stories from Mariupol, 
from Bucha, from all those cities where Russians came in and uh, it's very hard to read this, to translate this, but we need to show this to the world. You talked about um, your, your site being mainly a political one, the focus on politics. Could, could you give listeners uh, just a sense of politics in Ukraine? Bloody, a bird, a bird has just flown yeah, past my so face. it's very dangerous in Ukraine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a bird that came within about a centimetre of my eye, bloody hell. I've completely forgotten the question now, sorry. Um, obviously, for lots of people not from Ukraine, this is the first time they've really looked at Ukraine properly and tried to understand it. What should they know about Ukrainian politics? From your perspective as a journalist, as a sort of like a beginner, what, what, what do, you, do you see mistakes being made by foreign media or foreigners looking at Ukraine? What, what are, could you give us a basic sense of, of what is politics in Ukraine and how does it work? Uh, okay, 73% of people have uh, voted for Zelensky on elections and on the first day of war his fans raised to 95% because uh, everything that he did was like looking, looks like uh, right. Uh, he starts to record all those video messages and uh, people were waiting every evening for this message because it was the only thing that uh, can help them uh, to help all this all those all, all the stress mm. and um, there are a lot of people who told that uh, how the comedian can be a president but as we see his skills like um, captain of comedian uh, group uh, help them during this war because he don't uh, want to lose and uh, he will do everything to win. You mentioned earlier a sort of Russian propaganda. Obviously, I don't think many people in the West come across it much because it's Russian. It's, what, what, can you give us a sense of what is the Russian propaganda you face and, and how do you combat it? Uh, you know that uh, Russia has a lot of money uh, which they spend on uh, different media which they can just open in Spain, in Italy, in different countries and uh, they um, try to give those people th those narratives they want to give them. During uh, the beginning of the war in uh, 2014 in Ukraine, uh, all those media was already working and they show that it's not uh, Russia came to Ukraine, it's like Ukraine fighting Ukraine, like it was a civil war, but it wasn't. Mm. And uh, they started to build this network of propaganda many years ago and now it's, it's very huge. But those propaganda, but those they uh, are doing into Russia, it's, uh, it looks like hell, you know. If you open uh, every Russian media, you'll see bullshit. Because uh, all those news about uh, bio farms of different birds, uh, which uh, should... <laughs> there are more bird strikes in this interview. <laughs> yeah, um, there was news about that... Um, in Ukraine, uh, we have farms with birds, uh, which should um, destroy Russians uh, because they are Slavic. But Ukrainians are also Slavic, and uh, people didn't understand that uh, we are this, we have the same um, ancestors, and uh, they thought that it's true. And uh, there are a lot of stuff they just um, they can take a Ukrainian new, you know, and. Um, it will say that uh, Russians uh, have shelled the uh, border with uh, Ukraine. 
and they just take it and write Ukrainian shell to the border with Russia and they just do it vice versa and everything and post it onto their sites and people believe in it they believe that uh, Ukrainians here were waiting for Russian world uh, they were waiting that Russia came and free us but uh, nobody was uh, maybe 1% of people who believe in those shit but you know uh, after Russians came to Russian speaking cities and destroyed them and killed relatives of those people i think there are nobody in ukraine left who believe that russia can do something good for ukrainians is there anything we haven't talked about or you'd want people to to understand about your life about the life of kiev I and mean, we're here just outside kiev food market it's a absolutely beautiful <laughs> midsummer's day the war feels very far far away and then suddenly we see, you know, see some you know, it's very tricky vision because um, we live here for 5 months already and uh, we used to it we used to to air raid sirens to explosions in the morning explosions in different cities where our friends and relatives are and um, it's just like a psycho mechanism which helps us uh, to live our lives to continue live that and uh, I believe that all of these people who just like drinking latte or drinking wine they try to do something uh, with their lives but uh, I think that uh, they wake up in the morning and they check news feed they donate money to different funds uh, to help our armed forces to win this war and It may look like a peaceful city, but inside of every of these person, the war is continuing. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first thirty days completely free at telegraph.co.uk/audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1 p.m. each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world ukraine the latest is produced by louisa wells and giles gear and today on twitter making her debut with the telegraph social team claire hubble